proceed with our scripture reading on a tenth objection that has been raised in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? The thought has been presented by many that one act of faith secures the dismissal or forgiveness of past, present, and future sins all at once so that the true believer can never come under condemnation again. On the other hand, we have seen from a number of scriptures that the future salvation of the believer is set forth as conditional, that he has been forgiven for past sins, that he has been delivered from present sins, and that there are to be no future sins in the normal course of the Christian life. How wonderful are the New Testament promises in this respect. But if he should fall into sin, he needs to confess that sin and be forgiven. If he persists contrary to the kind endeavors of the Holy Spirit and of the Word of God to bring him back to that point of submission, then his soul must be eternally lost. But the problem is, how shall we reconcile these two concepts if they are both equally presented in the New Testament? And how shall we shield the author of the Bible from inconsistency if these two modes of salvation are equally substantiated? We have been reading a number of scriptures that indicate that the salvation of the Bible is a matter of the forgiveness of past sins and that there is lacking a specific explanation of what would indeed be a mysterious procedure. If when God forgives us for our sins, he would also forgive us for our future sins, this certainly should require a very thorough explanation so we would understand this great mystery which is so contrary to all our human procedure. Certainly no one even endeavors or entertains the thought of forgiving for something that has not been done as yet. And certainly God implies nowhere in the Bible that he forgives sin before it is committed and before the guilt has been accrued. We come to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel, where we read about our Lord's commission to his disciples, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins, or repentance unto remission of sins, should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Certainly there's no implication here that we are warranted to go forth and declare the forgiveness of future sins on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 10th chapter of Acts and verse 43, we have concerning Peter that he was authorized to proclaim the forgiveness of sin and said that he was in line with the prophets of old. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. 
And there's no explanation that the mysterious remission of future sins would also be involved. And therefore we are left with our common sense interpretation of the Word of God. In the 13th chapter of Acts, verses 38 and 9, we have the Apostle Paul affirming and said that this was his procedure and that the forgiveness of sin was of the nature of justification. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Here is the clear implication of the forgiveness of past sins. In the 26th chapter of Acts, verse 18, the Apostle Paul affirms that his commission authorized him to preach the forgiveness of sins after men had turned away from sin. And no implication is that his was the mysterious procedure to declare the forgiveness also of future sins. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, this great epistle on profound church truth, we have declared in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, verse 32, we have a tremendous implication here as to the nature of God's forgiveness. We are to forgive one another's sins committed against us, even as God has freely forgiven us. There is no intimation whatever that God in some mysterious way has forgiven us for future sins. And certainly we can do no such thing in reference to our fellow men. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The Apostle John affirmed in his first epistle, chapter 1 and verse 9, that forgiveness of sin was to take place on the basis of confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We notice the plural here of sins. And we notice that the forgiveness is to the same extensiveness as the confession and the acknowledgement. There is therefore no plain teaching to be found in the Bible to substantiate the idea that when God forgives us for our sins, in response to repentance and faith, he forgives us also for future sins that we shall commit until the day of our death. This most unusual procedure would require some clear explanations, and certainly God would not leave us in the dark if this great mystery were true. But there are many passages of Scripture that indicate that a person may be in a state of forgiveness in one period of his life and come under condemnation at another and need to be forgiven for some sins for which he was not forgiven before. The many passages on the necessity of continuing humbly in the faith until death as a condition of final salvation 
is a plain indication that future sins are not dealt with until they happen. But in addition, we may read the following scriptures. In the first book of Kings, we have the account of Israel. And certainly Israel was not dealt with on any basis of the forgiveness of future sin. Here Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple. And so 1 Kings 8, 33 reads as follows. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again unto thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou from heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again into the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place, and confess thy name, and turn from their sin, when thou afflictest them, then hear thou from heaven, and forgive the sin of thy servants, and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk, and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. Certainly they were not forgiven for future sins, and certainly no such procedure can be traced through the Old Testament. In the 51st Psalm, we have an account as to David's great sin and conscious condemnation after he had lived such a humble life, pleasing to God. In verses 1 to 4, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He was conscious of condemnation and guilt. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. This, of course, was figurative. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Here was a real consciousness that his sins were before God, and they were not forgiven and not dealt with beforehand, even though he had been such a faithful, humble servant of God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He was conscious that he was on very dangerous ground because of his great light, and God in justice could have doomed his soul forever. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. So we have David in this great humble confession, acknowledging his sin and emphasizing the fact that sin is dealt with as sin. But Ezekiel was particularly outspoken 
that any future pathway of sin was not covered in present forgiveness of those reconciled to God, but would result in eternal loss. In his 18th chapter, verse 24, we read, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Verse 26, When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them, here is physical death. Then we have the pronouncement, For his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. Here we have spiritual death, or separation. Thus we have it affirmed that God deals with sin as it is committed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy mercy and Thy love to us. We thank Thee for the frank teachings of Thy Word, warning us that we cannot sin without coming under condemnation. We pray that none of us may take advantage of Thy love and mercy, but that we may forsake and confess and repent of any sin. Come to Thee for forgiveness. Be restored to Thy great heart of love. Proceed on through life in a joyous faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.